According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, Luke chapter 12. We are continuing on in emphasis number 7, a chapter that has 10 emphases. And uh, our pace has slowed down a bit since we hit this chapter, I noticed. Things like that used to bother me and then... After a while, I started thinking, you know, if the Lord's slowing us down, then let's just see what, he, what it is that He has to teach us here in the process of this chapter. Emphasis number seven is on watchfulness. Content here in verses 35 through 48. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Going all the way down to the end where we are really presently focused on in terms of from everyone who has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him. They will ask all the more the great accountability verses of our New Testament. And this is what we want to be looking at before we begin. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that as believer priests, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, humble before the authority of God's word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again this morning for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. Father, take every thought captive, turn our attention upon the glories of your Son as we study this word today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We have covered three of the subpoints at this point, A, B, and C, starting with the loins and the lamps, moving on, that was under point A, and then moving on to point B. Before I do, remind yourself, this is not a dispensation of the church chapter, message, passage in any respects. The application we draw is secondary. And we draw the secondary application because we also are functioning under a concept of imminency in terms of the rapture of the church. Our dispensation will end, maybe today, I hope so, but under principles of imminency. And because we function in imminency, a chapter like this that teaches imminency principles can be instructive for us and should be instructive, instructive for us. But we can't make the mistake to think that the principles here belong to us because they don't. These are imminency principles that are given to Israel for their stewardship. And with respect to the tribulational saints that are going to be uh, under requirements to endure and to suffer and the things that they're faced with in the tribulation, they will be operating with the imminency of the second advent, the imminency of the return of Christ and his victory over uh, the, the adversary at Armageddon and so forth. So let's not confuse the two concepts. Our imminency is anticipating the rapture. Their imminency is anticipating second advent. And please, let's, uh, let's have a handle on that. The uh, simile for imminency is dispensationally instructive. Noticing uh, principles here that they are not entitled to attend this feast. They are slaves waiting for their master to come back from the feast that he's attending, and they're not. All right, and that's, I think it's, Extremely significant because it uh, is a difference between Israel and the church. Uh, when, when Christ receives his bride, Israel has no part in that. 
Israel is still on the earth going through their tribulational discipline while Christ has received his bride and is in the presence of the Father. Uh, and we understand that if you can approach this on a dispensational basis. If, uh, if you don't, if you're a replacement theologian, then you're, you know, all bets are off and, and uh, you're plunged into realms of confusion trying to, trying to interpret these things. Thirdly, point C, Jesus commands his audience to know the burglary maxim. And uh, again, I'm not dazzled by that title. I keep trying to, I even offered it to anyone to give me a better title. But this is the story that if you know what time the thief's showing up, you don't let him rob you, right? And everybody knows that. If you know that, you know, 315, he's busting in the back window to climb into wherever, well, then you know that ahead of time. Stop it. Keep it from happening. And everybody should know this. And you can take it either as a command in which case it's imperative mood and he's ordering them to know the parable, understand the parable and make their own application. Or you take it as an indicative, in which case it's thrown open to everybody. Everybody knows this is true. Still, it's left in their uh, realm to make application, to know the burglary maxim, to know the, uh, the, the housebreaking parable here. If you know what time he's showing up, stop it. That's verse 39. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And we can draw our own application in the sense of, I think God is so wise in not telling us, by the way, when the rapture is going to happen. Uh, you know, if, uh, if he would have told them in the first century that the rapture was over 2,000 years away, I would expect that the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and the Ephesians, and they would have just blown it off and said, well, who cares, Right. But because they were under imminency and every generation since the first century has been under imminency, we are under imminency. It still gives us that vividness and that sense of urgency that today our soul may be required of us. Today we have to walk right. You know, if somehow I receive a prophetic message that tells me that, you know, we're 10,000 years away from the rapture. Well, goodness, does that change my sense of urgency? You bet it does. It has to. So that's why God in his wisdom kept uh, the dispensation of the church under an imminent uh, application and ultimately from beginning to end. We've, we've been under imminency since Pentecost that started the entire stewardship. Well, point D then. There were some subpoints under all of these. I'm just skipping, skipping through. Peter's request. Peter wants some information. He says, Lord, is this for us? <laughs> all right. Who are, you, who are you talking to here, Lord? Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone, everyone else as well? And so the Lord answers with another message, a follow-up message, very similar. And yet, I think, bringing into focus some important uh, principles. And that's what we're going to glean under the subpoints here, one through four. Peter's request, this is point D, Peter's request for clarification provides additional dispensational instruction. We've already seen dispensational instruction based on the the parable itself the master the slaves the house the wedding everything that's involved there i think is highly instructive we're going to get more after peter asked the question he says lord is this for us are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well and that question right there luke twelve forty one, are you addressing this to us that question right there i think ought to be center stage on uh, in, in seminaries, center stage for bibliology and hermeneutics. 
uh, Bible students need to know who a passage is addressed to. Or they will make all kinds of stupid applications that, that have no bearing on anything. They have no business making those kind of applications. And uh, I've even started, to, and I don't know if I'm right for this or not, but it's interesting, and we'll see how it, if it bears fruit. But I have started to use um, ludicrous examples to illustrate what people are doing. And to ask them when they're going to start doing such and such kind of a thing. See, and if, if, if I encounter believers that are plunged into replacement theology, for example, that are going to try to adopt Israel's imperatives for their own, are going to try to claim um, Abraham's earthly land grant or Abraham's earthly inheritance and things like that, I'm going to try to put them in a mindset uh, where they're going to understand that they're dispensation of the church believers and not dispensation of Israel believers. And I may ask some goofy questions, just like, well, when are you going to go march around Jericho? The Bible told you to do that. The Bible told you to, to blow a trumpet. The Bible told you to go into the city and slaughter every man, woman, and child. Uh, when are you going to start obeying those Bible verses? And, and it's just as it's shocking enough and ludicrous enough to people to look at me like I'm a fruitcake. And they'll say, well, that's, that's kind of dumb. I wouldn't apply that. That's not, that's not for me. Ah, okay. So you do grasp the concept that there are verses that don't apply to you. <laughs> That's a start. Let's build on that now. Let's understand, are you a part of Israel and their corporate body, or are you a part of the church and that corporate body? What is your identification? Are you baptized into Moses? Or are you baptized into Christ? And, you know, depending on who you're speaking to they may not have any frame of reference for anything of what you're talking about but at least it's giving a a spark to start to discuss doctrinal matters so peter wants to know are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well and so the lord says who then is the faithful and sensible steward he addresses the his answer to peter right he's answering a question with a question okay some people hate that, but Jesus does it here, and it's not sin, so you know, it's okay. Um, and he answers with a question, a question about stewardship. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? And, he, and in this answer, he's going to be describing stewardship in, I think, a, a remarkable way, because he can't talk about the church. Church is mystery. And to be, well, let's see. In terms of his humanity, he's not tapping into omniscience. He's not, he's not uh, accessing uh, God the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages through omniscience. So it's, it's a fair and legitimate statement to say that Jesus Christ, in his humanity, doesn't know about the church. Only so far as under prophetic utterance he was able to say, upon this rock I will build my church. But there is no Old Testament passage to tie together with that utterance for jesus of nazareth to have any idea about mystery doctrine that's being withheld until the apostolic age that may give you some more things to chew on but in any event so he's not he cannot speak of the church here but what he can do again under prophetic utterance through the leading of the holy spirit he's talking about stewardship and he's talking about increased stewardship responsibilities so let's look at it. 
And by the way, this is in total parallel with Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. And so this is going to come back again in the, in the Mount Olivet Discourse. This is going to come back again in the week ahead of his crucifixion as he's preparing his disciples for uh, really his, his final words to them as he's preparing them to carry on after he's gone. We won't turn there, but there'll only be a couple of spots where vocabulary is a little bit different and we'll draw a contrast. Ultimately, though, I think the bulk of what we'll do in this will be reserved for um, the Matthew development. All right. So the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And there's a progression here. In verse 42, his master will put him in charge of his servants. And he goes from being in charge of servants to being in charge of possessions. Presumably that would be servants and then other possessions beyond the servants. So there's a progression there from verse 42 to verse 44. Uh, the master puts the servant, the faithful and sensible steward, in charge of his slaves. And then, if he's faithful there, he gets put in charge of his all his possessions. Remember, Joseph was had limited responsibilities and then larger responsibilities in the house of Potiphar. And it got to the point where Potiphar just gave him everything, except his wife, okay, and then, of course, the one item he didn't have sovereignty over was where the testing came in. And the story we're familiar with there. I also, it's interesting, in verse 42, the steward is not automatically already even now in charge of those slaves yet. It's still described as a future tense in verse 42. Who then is the faithful and sensible sla- a steward, oikonomos, we'll talk about that, whom his master will put in charge of his servants. So, in other words, in an evaluation of stewardship, there is still a future entrusting, a future assignment. Okay? And this is why I say it's you have to read between the lines, and it's only with our hindsight as a church-age perspective that we can look back and, and have this verse make sense. Because from the standpoint of Israel, they already are the stewards, Right? Israel's been the stewards for 2,000 years. They've been stewards since Abraham. So how in the world could Jesus be talking about his servants not yet in a stewardship responsibility? See, well, with hindsight, we can understand that their stewardship gets suspended. We can understand that, uh, that the partial hardening takes place, that God puts the program for Israel on hold while he works out his plan for the church in a different stewardship, see. And Israel will yet have their stewardship restored in the future once the church is raptured and the tribulation is inaugurated. So this is a way that you can think of Israel and their stewardship, even though it's already existing when Christ is speaking, and yet still yet future for its commencement. Make sense? And so, in terms of the dispensational framework, if you have your diagram from our Plan of God reader, he says, uh, the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants, that's looking forward to the tribulation when Israel will have their stewardship recommence. And then, of course, if they're faithful in that, for the believers that faithfully run their course in the tribulation, 
then he will put him in charge of all his possessions. They will get to enter into the, into the millennial kingdom under a greater stewardship responsibility. So there is a promotion from verse 42 to verse 44. Let's spell out some issues here, though. Under subpoint one, a faithful steward must be sensible, first of all. A faithful steward must be sensible, first of all. Now, part of this, I didn't give you the vocabulary for pistos, so it'll come up later, but um, we have a contrast here between the faithful steward and the faithless when he gets chopped up into bits and assigned a place with the unbelievers in verse 46. Okay? And the unbeliever is the contrast with the faithful. Pistos and apistos. And we'll give that to you under subpoint four. But the, uh, the faithful steward. Ha pistos oikonomos. That's right there, the faithful steward. Remember, God doesn't work through unfaithful believers and he doesn't work through unbelievers other than to work overcoming what they do and to work in spite of them he can glorify himself through what an unbeliever does but he doesn't use on a stewardship basis unbelievers and he doesn't use faithless believers god uses faithful believers those are the ones to whom he opens doors those are the ones that he assigns stewardship responsibilities and so you can call this the faithful steward. You can call this the believing steward. You can call this, obviously, regenerate is a given. No one else could be believing. But not only regenerate, but also walking in the light, filled with the Holy Spirit, in fellowship. The more and more we start examining these passages, we start finding that the term believer is applied to somebody with eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but also someone who is walking by faith. When you stop walking by faith, you don't, you're no longer a believing one in the exercise of your, in the experiential sanctification of your walk. Now, you don't lose your eternal life. You don't lose your regeneration. You don't lose uh, your eternal blessings. But Scripture will no longer call you a pistos, you will be called an apostos. See? So, um, and I think the more we study that, I think we'll do ourselves some favors, and especially, uh, you know, the divorce passage of 1 Corinthians 7 that talks about if the unbelieving one departs. Uh, I've known pastors that have taught that, that unbelieving one has to be, absolutely has to be an unregenerate unbeliever who's, you know, without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. And they would never allow for a believer in reversionism to be classified as an apistos, the unbelieving one, even though the, the vocabulary itself allows for it. The, uh, the Bible allows for it, but people won't allow for it in, uh, in different things of, of what they think they're applying all right i put it up here for a reason in this way ha pistos oikonomos and this is where we have in the attributive position the steward what kind of steward the faithful steward okay and if i change colors i can uh, highlight it better there's ha the oikonomos steward and then we'll switch to uh oh i don't care um Pistos here, so we see the attributive position and the adjective. 
All right. And every language has a feature of even languages that don't like Greek is not as critical in terms of order. Yet when it does put them in, in certain order constructions, then it does have a significance. All right. So we understand this. Um, pistos is an adjective that's in between the and steward. And it's the modifier for steward, the faithful steward. Okay. And but then it doubles up again. It comes back to another article. Ha. And another adjective. Phronimos. And so if you want to communicate the redundancy of, of that, you could say, I mean, it would, it would be simple to say the faithful and sensible steward. That streamlines it. That simplifies it. That's, uh, that's how it's addressed in this English text. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? But that's not the order in the, in the Greek text. It is the faithful steward, the sensible one. And it deliberately took that second adjective and pushed it out to the right-hand side and highlighted it. Specifically so that it doesn't get lost in the combination with faithful. It is deliberately being set aside so that it takes center stage. A faithful steward is a sensible steward. That's the point that's being made here. Otherwise, you could have just, you know, crammed it inside there and like you do in English and, and be done with it. The faithful and sensible steward. All right. It's like the, uh, the ridiculous long-winded pastor. Okay. You can, you can put any number of adjectives in between the and the, and the noun. But when you take one of them and you set it apart and you highlight it, the ridiculous pastor, the long-winded one. Okay? Where you've left that final phrase is where the attention is drawn, and that's the point of the, of the application here. So the faithful steward must be sensible, first of all. That's the impact, or that's the, uh, the highlight here in the, in the syntax of this passage. Now, the term for sensible is phronimos. Phronimos, P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S, phronimos. And frain is a thinking word. If your thinking is divided, if your frain has been schizoed, then you are schizophrenic. Okay, that's where we get the term schizophrenic. Your mind is your frain. And um, frenetic activity or schizophrenic activity, or there's different terms that come from this root. Uh, there's the adjective phronimos, and then there's, you can put an alpha in front of it, and it means unthinking, unwise. Um, you took an action, but it wasn't based on conscious thought. <laughs> it wasn't based on intelligent reasoning. In fact, there was no good reason for what it was you just did there. It was without thought. It was thoughtless. Generally speaking, it was probably emotional. All right? But... Although it's rendered wise in a lot of verses, I'm going to try to avoid the translation wise because we have too many other wisdom applications that we're familiar with, but just based on sophos, based on sophia, based on doctrinal teaching, we understand when you get gnosis and epinosis and oida and sophia. We understand sophia is uh, the wisdom that, that we seek to obtain, the wisdom that's the centerpiece of Proverbs, uh, the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, we've had lots of teaching in terms of wisdom over the years. This isn't that. 
This is not Sophia, this is Phronimos. Okay? So let's just grab a couple of these passages, or all of them. Anyway, it won't take too long. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. The idea of, of, of Phronimos and how it's different from Sophia is in the application. Sophia is a much grander term. It's a deeper term. It's, a, it's a, an eternal term. But Phronimos is practical wisdom. Phronimos is prudence. It is a shrewd wisdom, what we're going to see in some of the other ways that it's rendered. It is the, the, uh, the expressed practical wisdom for the here and now. In a lot of ways. All right, so let's take a look at it. Verse 24, therefore, everyone, this is Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a phronimos, a wise man, not a sophos, not a man, you know, full of uh, the sophos with Sophia wisdom we're accustomed to, but a phronimos who built his house on the rock. This is practical wisdom, experiential wisdom, common sense as it were, somebody that thinks things through academically, uh, architecturally, uh, in terms of engineering or construction. You know, you could have somebody that's very sophos, very full of divine Sophia, divine wisdom, uh, just intimate with the Lord and fellowship with the Father and they're going, to be, they're going to have maximum rewardability at the judgment seat of Christ. But in earthly terms, they're blithering idiots. Okay? They have no phronimos to speak of in mechanical features or construction features or even uh, just facets of, of uh, society. No illustrations or anything at the moment. So... The wise man who built his house on a rock, okay, versus the fool who builds his house on sand. All right. Now, do you need to have biblical wisdom to build your house on a rock instead of on sand? No. An unbeliever can figure that out. See, Phronimos wisdom is not necessarily from God's, the source of God, from his word, from, it's not spiritual necessarily. Uh, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. All right. Chapter 10 and verse 16, another use of it then, in Matthew 10, 16. It's common in Matthew, do you notice that? Not so common in Luke. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, have good biblical wisdom. It's not what it says. It says, be shrewd as serpents, while yet innocent as doves. All right, while yet innocent as doves. And this is why as we raise our children, we want to, yes, we want to raise them in Sophia. We want to raise them in Gnosis, Epinosis, Oida, Sophia, the things of the Word of God. But you can have a young man or a young daughter, a young person who can be full of divine wisdom and still very naive in the things of the world. And are you doing them any favors at that point? How about if we equip them with some uh, Phronimos as well as some Sophia so they understand uh, how the world works and they recognize why the world standards are different than our standards and uh, why it is that, uh, that we do come out from among them and be separate and, 
applications of that sort. Over to Matthew 24. Well, that's the, the parallel to our text today, because that's the Mount Olivet Discourse there. Matthew 24:45. So you'll notice. Should sound familiar to you. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It's identical vocabulary through faithful and sensible. It has a different term for food, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. But look at the next chapter, too. In chapter 25, you start talking about the wise versus the foolish virgins. And you'll notice the wise virgins here are not, you know, Sophia wisdom. that We would call, you know, divine maturity of, of biblical wisdom. But they, uh, they are prudent. Prudent, meaning uh, discerning uh, in, in the practical wisdom of daily life. Prudent versus sitting there in the dark with no oil in your lamp, <laughs> okay? Which is the opposite of Franny Moss is off Franny Moss, foolish or imprudent. And that's uh, you got the prudent or imprudent virgins here in this chapter, verse two, four, eight, and nine. That's the context of that entire paragraph there. All right. Not only is uh, we have it in Luke only twice, the text we're looking at this morning in chapter twelve, but it comes back again in chapter sixteen. And verse 8. And uh, this is a steward, a manager, and a manager that's squandering possessions. And a manager is about to get caught in his embezzlement. And it's a, it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting parable. I think pastors get mixed up when they try to teach it, and we're going to try to be very careful with it, because it, it almost seems like Jesus is recommending that you be thuggish or that you be uh, criminal in your, in your stewardship. That's not what's happening there, and, and I hope we'll have a good handle on it as we go through it. But I also think it's remarkable how the, what it does communicate in the sense that when the church is raptured and Israel has their stewardship restored to them, you ever think about that? Let's say the rapture is this afternoon, 1130, okay? And so we're raptured, we're gone, every believer on the planet is gone, Israel has their stewardship restored to them, and yet there's not a single believer in the group yet. The national stewardship of Israel is restored, and they're all unbelievers. I find that interesting. Particularly when you go back to parables that talk about unrighteous stewards. When does God ever use an unrighteous steward? Anyway, um, he has uh, been squandering possessions and now the master uh, wants some return on his investment. And so this, this uh, guy is very clever. I mean, this guy uh, you know, is almost like uh, Timothy Geithner. Oops. <laughs> Got political there. Um, he himself is a, uh, a, a tax cheat. He himself is unscrupulous in his own business dealings. But to save his own skin, he needs to make the top dog happy. And so that's what he's doing here. And he brings in all these other uh, criminals, and he starts cutting them deals so that they can cut their losses, he can cut his losses, and he can, uh, he can pay off the master. And so, um, anyway, he starts doing that. The point being, we get to this issue here. 
And we're told in, uh, in verse 8, His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. He had acted with phronimos. Because the sons of this age are more phronimos in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Anyway, it's an interesting application that's there. Um, we do want our we want to be shrewd and yet harmless. We don't want our we don't want to become so comfortable, familiar with the way the world works that we start working that way ourselves. Okay, that's the, that's where you cross the line from being shrewd and you're no longer harmless at that point. You're participating in those things. All right, uh, those are the applications in the Gospels. In Romans, Paul uses it in Romans 11.25 and in 12.16. Paul also uses it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In Romans 11.25, he says, I do not want you to be an informed brethren of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. You will not be phronimos in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that's his application of it there. And then in chapter 12 and verse 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be phronimos in your own estimation. See, some people are too clever by half. We talk about. They get caught in their own cleverness. They're not as clever as they think they are. 1 Corinthians 4.10 we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are a phronimos in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. That was in a very tongue-in-cheek passage when Paul was saying, you know, you're right. You guys know everything. You guys are so phronimos, and we're just, we're just stupid. And, uh, you know, you're kings, and you're reigning, and you're already in millennial Christianity, and we're suffering, and we're being mistreated, and we're enduring, and oh my goodness. You obviously have the better Christian way of life compared to us. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's a tongue-in-cheek message with a lot of sarcasm throughout. What he's communicating is that they have the wrong approach to the Christian way of life. And they should adjust to what Paul's doing. Alright, chapter 10, verse 15. Another application of Phronimos. You'll remember... He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, phronimos. You judge what I say. And then the last application where it comes up is in 2 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Where he says, for you being so phronimos, you tolerate the foolish gladly. And so he says, you'll, you'll allow me to be foolish here since you... You're so wise. You're so clever. You're so... Anyway, it's more of the irony, tongue-in-cheek sarcasm dripping off of Paul's tongue with respect to the... Uh, with respect to the Corinthian believers there. All right, well, back to Luke 12 then. So what we're saying is the faithful steward must be phronimos. He must have a practical wisdom for daily life to know who he is, where he is, what's going on. To not be confused. 
not be distracted. I really think we're going to have some huge testing in this regard. Christianity, American Christianity needs to wake up and they don't have a lot of time left to do it. And uh, particularly if they've confused patriotism with spirituality. Or they've confused temporal life with spiritual life. And uh, or they uh, they are I've read emails and I've been in conversations with with believers who um, feel as if um, our nation's plunge into socialism is um, unbiblical. And I have sparked some questions in some people and I've looked at them and said, well, show me the verse that promises you that you will live out your entire days under free market capitalism. Since when are we entitled? The Christian way of life can be exhibited under Marxism, socialism, under militant Islam and underground hidden uh, underground churches. Let's not confuse our political life with our spiritual life. And if we, uh, if we do confuse that, then I would say that we're lacking in our phronimos. The faithful steward must be phronimos. The faithful steward must have a practical wisdom to understand the day and age in which he lives. So that's the first principle. Secondly, a faithful steward must be a feeder. A faithful steward must be a feeder. And this is a fascinating word. It's a hapax. Uh, it's the only time in the New Testament that this term is used. Cetometrion. Cetometrion. 4620. The only place that it's ever used. Because in the Matthew parallel, it uses the word trophy for food. But here it's cetometrion. Cetos is wheat and metrion is a measure. And so you're measuring out the wheat. And a steward measures out the wheat. In fact, measures out the grain allowance for each slave for each day. And, uh, and it's interesting, the imperatives that come, when Jesus tells Peter to feed my lambs, the imperative to feed is consistent with every time we come across the, uh, the applications of stewardship. Stewardship is a ministry of God's Word. It's a ministry of God's Word. And I hope we can understand that we all have a gifted angle to the ministry of God's Word. Your gifted angle may not be on the teaching of God's Word, or it might. Your gifted angle might be on the exhibiting of God's Word, the fellowship of God's Word. See... And you're still ministering the Word of God, but you're ministering through fellowship. You're ministering through prayer. You're ministering through encouragement. You're ministering through whatever facet, whatever angle your giftedness and your ministry approaches. It's still a ministry of the Word of God. And so the idea is to be a feeder. To be a feeder. And... Uh, Feeding means uh, exactly that. It means that you, it's not, it's not left in the, um, in the uh, purview of the eating one, of what he eats, when he eats, what he feels like eating, how much he feels like eating. 
you know, when you feed a baby, does the baby choose? Or do you choose? Because if you choose not to do anything, the baby's not going to eat, right? Can't eat. Helpless. What's it going to eat? So you feed the baby. Particularly, I mean, the newborn that can't even roll over, can't sit up, can't do anything, just can lay there and cry. If that, if that newborn is going to eat, you've got to feed it. So what are you going to do? You're going to stick a T-bone steak in his mouth? Okay. And this is a snare, too, I think, where um, um, you know, pastors, they, they go overboard and they're, they're shoving steak in the mouth and the, and the, the flock's not ready for it. And you, you wouldn't do that with an earthly baby. That baby doesn't need a steak. baby needs a nipple. Milk. Okay, you're shoving a cheeseburger in there or steak or whatever you're doing. Feed my sheep. And it's an imperative that's given to the minister of the word of God or the steward in this application. He's the one that measures it. How much does he measure? That's his realm. So a faithful steward must be a feeder. And this is what Israel is going to have as a responsibility in the tribulation. It's what they're going to have in the millennium. The Gentiles will go to the Jews for their Bible teaching. Thirdly, a faithful steward must not grow brutal in the dereliction of their duties. This occurs when the steward loses track of imminency and accountability. The faithful steward must not grow brutal. This comes up again and again and again. This comes up in Ezekiel 34 in the woe passage to faithless shepherds. It comes up in the pastoral epistles. It comes up in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elder cannot lord it over those allotted to his charge, but he must prove to be an example to the flock. This is uh, you know, an admonition to any husband in his marriage. There's stewardship responsibilities as a husband to a wife. Parents to children. Parents are to be disciplinary, but not brutal. Pastors to congregations. Faithful steward must not grow brutal. How many shepherds abuse their flocks in a lot of different ways? The way they treat them, the way they teach them, the way they uh, put demands on them, the way they uh, manipulate them through guilt and religion and legalism and everything else. It's brutal. Read Ezekiel 34 and find out what the good shepherd thinks about those faithless shepherds. With force and severity, they've dominated them. Instead of with gentleness, they haven't. They're supposed to bind up the broken and heal the sick and bring back the lost. And yet it says in Ezekiel 34, with force and severity, you have dominated them. You know, husbands that are brutal towards their wives, physically and emotionally and other ways. Faithful steward must not grow brutal. When he says here, you have, um, but the steward, if that slave says in his heart, and it's, it's interesting because he's called a steward in verse 42. He's put in charge of the servants in verse 42. He's put in charge of the slaves. But you know what? He himself is also a slave. So blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing. And then if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat his slaves. What is it that motivates the brutality? He's abandoned imminency and he's also lost track of accountability. He's put himself in the 
position of the master. And he's not the master. He's just the steward. And ultimately, he's not even doesn't deserve to be a steward either. He's a slave. He's a slave that was entrusted with a stewardship responsibility. And so the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces. He will... Um, it's a, that's a fun term. He's going to cut him in half. He's going to chop him in half. He's going to treat him like Samuel treated Agag. Chop him up. Send him as an illustration. Assign him a place with the unbelievers. He is an unbeliever. He is unfaithful. Notice I said he's an unbeliever. I didn't say he was unregenerate. He wasn't saved. He's not going to go to heaven when he dies. He's not walking by faith. He's an unbeliever. Maybe that's the biggest thing. We've got to abandon the use of believer versus unbeliever as synonyms for saved and lost. Because the unbelief of the believer is a terrible warning that Hebrews is all over. When you're not walking by faith, what are you doing? You're an unbeliever. You're walking by sight. You're not walking by faith. You're still saved. You still have eternal life. You're still regenerate. But you're carnal. You're walking like mere men. You're not walking by faith. Faithful and faithless stewards will be assigned their proper places and this is where you have the contrast between the pistos and the opistos. Pistos, 4103. P-I-S-T-O-S. Opistos, number 571. You have the pistos in verse 42, the opistos in verse 46. And they have their proper places. They have their proper places. Now, dispensationally speaking... The place with the unbelievers is outside the wedding feast. Dispensationally speaking, when Christ comes the second advent and rewards his faithful servants, the reward will be an invitation into the wedding feast. And we're going to give some vocabulary so we're clear on this. I'm not always consistent myself and I apologize for that. But wedding supper, wedding feast. Okay, consider there are activities we have in heaven during the tribulation, wedding supper with the father, with our with his son, with our husband. And then there are activities on earth with invited guests, wedding feast. Okay, and I'm going to try to be more consistent in my terminology there. I don't always do a good job with that. But the wedding feast then is when folks are going to be invited to come in. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles will be invited to come in. And remarkably enough, some of them are going to be carnal before the invitations get sent out. They're going to show up not dressed properly. And they're going to be excluded. And there's going to be some that are going to be invited and are going to have better things to do. <laughs> what do you got better to do than come to the wedding feast of Jesus Christ and his bride? And they're going to say, oh, no, thanks. I've got crops to bring in. I've got business to do. I've got other things going on. So, anyway, when we get to all those other parables coming up, then hopefully we'll do a good job with it. One thing we want to do, though, again, how did we start this hour? Is this a church application or a Jewish application? It's a Jewish application. Thank you. The idea of being invited in or excluded is not church. It's Israel. 
And uh, maybe you read Jody Dillow, you've read other pastors that talk about uh, being excluded from the wedding feast. That's not a church application. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. They're sorry. They're wrong. Israel will either be invited, included, excluded, based on faithfulness, faithlessness, and so forth. But even the most faithless, dirtbag, loser, Christian way of life, I'm talking about church-age loser, Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, they died the sinner to death in, in uh, Acts chapter 5. They are part of the bride. The bride will be present with Christ. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. The bride is the bride. And when you, when you understand that, you understand that um, these inclusion, exclusion, faithfulness, faithless, all of those, every one of those is an Israel passage, not a church passage. All right, so they have their place. Accountability increases with increased responsibility. See if we can get through this in 10 minutes. Accountability increases with increased responsibility. Verses 47 and 48. And the division there is unfortunate because we're going to break down verse 47 and half of 48 in one side and then 48b on the other hand. So verse 47, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will would receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it, he was ignorant of the master's will. So you got there's two slaves in this verse. There's a slave in verse 47, one who knows, and a slave in verse 48, one who does not know. And what do they know or don't know? They don't know the master's will, the master's thinking. So a slave who knows his master's will and willfully, volitionally, defiantly works against it or ignores it, he's accountable. He's big time accountable. And he will receive many lashes. How many? Many. Yeah, it doesn't say. (laughs) How many is many? Many is many. Okay. Many is many. Yeah, if they don't tell you the number, that's... That's a lot, right? <laughs> right? Like a drill sergeant telling you how many push-ups you're going to do. Many. And you don't want to know how many. You're just going to keep doing them until he says you've done enough. My drill sergeant said we're going to do enough push-ups to lower the state of Alabama three inches. And we knew that was a lot of push-ups. But now the one who did not know it. Now I want you to understand this guy's ignorance. You say, well, is ignorance an excuse? It's not an excuse, but it is a circumstance that's factored into the divine discipline. The ignorant slave. Because, understand, maybe he didn't know it because he's not entitled to know it. But he still, nevertheless, committed deeds worthy of a flogging. He did the same stuff that the other guy did. In other words, uh, you know, he was brutal to the fellow slaves. He didn't give them their rations and, and so on. He, he was just as culpable in the guilt of what he did. But because of his ignorance, you'll notice he still receives lashes. But he will receive but few. Okay? So is he excused for his ignorance? Or is he still guilty? He's still guilty. And is he uh, released from any punishment? No, he's still going to be flogged. 
That slave will still be flogged, but he will receive but few. He has a less uh, a lessened degree. There's a mercy to his flogging, as it were. And this is what I want to spell out here under sub point one. Willful negligence is harshly disciplined. But ignorant negligence faces a more limited lashing. Ignorant negligence faces a more limited lashing. They're still disciplined. Both slaves are lashed. Flogged. Scourged. I forget what the word is there. All right. But the one who knew better is flogged more severely. The one who did not know better is not flogged as much. He's still flogged, but he's not flogged as much. Okay? Understand that. Understand what happens in your own Christian growth. The older you are, the more floggings you get. Because you should know better. Absolutely, you should know better. If there's a sin pattern and and uh, you, you plunge back into stupidity that you should have learned from a long time ago, yeah, the discipline's a lot more. Absolutely it is. The hedge is lowered, the hedge of protection is lowered, and the hand of God's discipline is increased. And secondly now, there are progressions of being, of being given and being entrusted and what is expected in the second part of verse 48. And there's a difference between slaves and sons that I think this verse spells out, although the words aren't there. Slaves are given responsibilities and required to be faithful. They're not necessarily given reasons. They're not necessarily given the thinking of the Master, the purpose of the Master. They, they may not be invited into the Master's Goals and objectives and, and dreams and, and will. They're simply given orders and they're expected to stay faithful, to obey and do what they're told. Slaves are given responsibilities and required to be faithful. Sons, however, are given more than responsibilities. Yes, they're given responsibilities, but they're given more than that. They are also entrusted with the Father's will. With the Father's will. Now, when the boy is a little boy, there's no difference between a little kid and a slave. But as the little kid grows up, there starts to become more differences. Because the little slave kid grows up to be an adult slave. The little free kid grows up to be an adult son with full privileges. You read the book of Galatians lately? This metaphor is there. The son of the bondwoman, the son of the free woman. And functionally, while they're both infants or, or toddlers or little kids, there's not much difference. Their capacity to serve, their capacity to learn, their capacity to grow, the slave kid, the free kid. But when they grow up, the son of the free woman is going to become an adult son, a free son, a citizen in the Roman context. And when the slave grows up, he's going to be a slave. And so there's a contrast, not only in Galatians, but also in Hebrews. Remember Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son. And that contrast between a servant and a son is extraordinary. It's the contrast between Israel and the church. 
It's the contrast between their stewardship and our stewardship in terms of metaphor. Grace versus law, as it were, in the Galatians development or other applications. So think about everyone who has been given much. Israel, their stewardship. Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. Who has been entrusted much? To whom they entrusted much? That's a step beyond what's given. That's now a trust as well as something being given. Given responsibilities and entrusted with the Father's purpose. So from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Israel and their stewardship was accountable. And when they failed in their stewardship, they faced discipline. They failed, they're, they're, they faced national destruction. They faced captivity. They faced a uh, suspension of their stewardship responsibilities. But the church has not only been given much, the church has been entrusted with much. There's a second step there from giving to entrusted. And so not only is it required of us because we've been given stewardship responsibilities, we are required and even asked all the more because we've been given and we have been entrusted as sons with the Father's purpose. Notice, um, let me go over to Hebrews and then we can hit uh, Ephesians and we'll cut you loose here. We're already at the top of the hour. But in Hebrews 3, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. In other words, it was pointing forward to something greater along the way. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. You see, we are the ones that were to be revealed later if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We want to understand that. And this is the exact passage that warns believers against the unbelief which you see there in verse 12. Well, there's more to do on this, but this brings us to the end of emphasis number 7. I think we'll reserve additional studies until we get to all of it, the Mount Olivet Discourse, and we'll give a more comprehensive eschatology for the tribulation when we get to that point. We'll move on to emphasis number 8 next week, Lord willing, rapture pending. Not next week. Is next week our week off? We're good next week. Okay, so the week after is VBS. Okay, next week we'll come back. We'll have uh, emphasis number eight. And then uh, the week after that is the week we have off for VBS. Okay, thank you, Father. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Help us to understand what we've been given and how accountable we are. Help us to understand what we've been entrusted with and how doubly accountable we are. Help us to embrace our proper applications of imminency as we anticipate the rapture. But give us the phronimos as well to know the day and age in which we operate and to have the shrewdness in this fallen cosmos. Particularly, Father, because our nation is plunging into realms that uh, the bulk of uh, Christianity is not ready for. So equip us, prepare us, keep us on the alert, keep our armor on. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.